Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. My guest today is Dr. Gary Berman. Dr. Berman is a forensic odontologist, and he's also a member of the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, also known as DMORT. Today on the show, Dr. Berman will tell us all about his work in forensic odontology. He'll talk about his work with DMORT, including the World Trade Center site and Hurricane Katrina, and he'll talk about his work with the American Board of Forensic Odontology. All right, now here's Dr. Gary Berman. All right, so we're going to talk all about forensic odontology today, and you are a forensic odontologist. So I wanted to start with kind of a broad uh, definition. Can we kind of give a broad idea of what is forensic odontology? Uh, I'll be happy to. Forensic odontology, um, let's start off with the word odontology is just another word for dentistry. I believe it might be an old European word. But so when we talk about forensic odontology, it's interchangeable with forensic dentistry. And what this is, is a branch of forensic medicine, which we're applying our dental knowledge to both civil and criminal problems and, and such. Um, as a forensic odontologist, typically we will be working in a medical examiner coroner's office. We'll get involved with mass disaster situations. And a um, small percent of forensic odontologists also work with human abuse organizations. Okay. The whole field of forensic odontology is actually a specialty of forensic sciences, and it's not a specialty of dentistry. And the, this decision from the forensic odontologist was made way before my time. But we are a, um, a forensic specialty um, recognized by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, just like um, forensic pathology, forensic anthropology, criminalistics, engineering, Christian documents, et cetera, et cetera. The whole field of forensic odontology, we also have a organization called the American Board of Forensic Odontologists in which we can um, achieve um, specialty um, recognition in forensic odontology. Okay. But you, but you are a, a dentist. I mean, that, that's sort of your, Absolutely. your day job, right? um, Almost every single forensic odontologist, at least in the United States, they're either in private practice um, they, they might be teaching in a dental school or they might be um, working full time as an investigator in a um, medical examiner corner office. But as you said, we all consider this our second job. I work full time as a um, family dental practitioner. So what sort of training is involved in forensic odontology? I mean, do you cover that in dental school or is that kind of over and above? The um, let, let me take it step one step back because I kind of missed this, but what we're doing as okay. a forensic odontologist is probably 95% plus the time we're doing identification of an unknown decedent using teeth and jaws and craniofacial bones. And typically, again, this is done in a medical examiner's office or a mass disaster situation. Most of the time, what we're doing is verification when we can't visually identify somebody. But the field of forensic odontology, because it is considered especially of forensics more than dentistry, most dental schools might have one or two lectures on forensic odontology that are given to the dental students. But that's pretty much it. I think there might be one school um, out in possibly New Jersey that actually has a whole course on it. So 
once we become a dentist, I had to go ahead and find courses throughout the country to go ahead and get my training with it. Presently, there are two part-time fellowship programs that dentists that are interested in forensic odontology can take. One is offered by uh, McGill University. Uh, one is offered by University of Texas, uh, excuse me, University of Tennessee. And a program that's been in existence for many years uh, was stopped for a couple of years. I believe they're starting up again is at the University of Texas San Antonio. But most dentists like myself, we had to go around the country taking four and five day courses in forensic odontology in order to get our training um, with it. Currently, here in Detroit, which is where I, I live, we have a five-day forensic odontology course that is held every other year at our medical examiner in Wayne County, medical examiner's office in Wayne County, in which we would get about forty okay. um, dentists and dental hygienists that come in that are interested in forensic odontology, and we'll be able to train them in the medical examiner's office. So, for you, uh, the training that you had about. I mean, because you had to kind of get it when it was available. Uh, about how long did that take? I took my first course. Let, let me go back and talk about how I became interested in this and how it progressed into my education. My dental practice is about 10 miles from Detroit Metropolitan Airport. And back in 1987, there unfortunately was a Northwest Airline um, plane crash, Flight 255. and Reading about the the dentists that were involved with at that time our state dental team with the identifications um, got me very interested in this. So back in 1990, I called Dr. Ellen Warnock, who was the team leader for the Michigan Dental Association's Forensic Dental Identification Team, and he invited me to come down with him to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, and I found this absolutely fascinating. And for that reason, I started taking the courses that were being offered at that time. And most of them were through the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And unfortunately, they're no longer being offered. But I went ahead and first took a forensic odontology course from them, which was a five-day and some hands-on with specimens. And from there, as I could find other courses around the country, I would go take a, a course here and there um, with it. The training was sort of like ongoing every year because you're, you're working full time. I would try to take mm -hmm. one five-day course or something along that way. And back in 1991, I happened to be taking a course in forensic anthropology from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in, um, I believe it was Albuquerque. And I met there a young forensic pathologist um, just finishing up his training in New York City, um, Dr. Michael Kaplan. And in talking to him, he said that he was going to be the new forensic pathologist in Washtenaw County, which is Ann Arbor, Michigan, literally 10 minutes from my office. So I happened to got oh, lucky, wow. made contact with the new forensic pathologist. And Dr. Kaplan was wonderful when he started, um, started calling me up. And I started doing cases in that county. It took me from the time I started, I got my interest starting courses to the point that I had enough education and enough casework to challenge the boards about 10 years. So I finally became board certified in 2002. 
Okay, so there is a board certification for forensic odontologists. There is, correct. As you mentioned, the, the forensic odontologist has a role in identification in mass casualties, and this is something that you have quite a bit of experience with. Um, you're a part of the organization called DMORT. Correct. Uh, can you tell can you tell us what, what is DMORT and what does it do? Okay, let's start with the, the name DMORT um, means Disaster Mortuary Operations Response Team. DMORT started um, in the early 1990s. The National Funeral Directors Association made a decision that the funeral directors were going to organize a portable disaster morgue that they would be able to move around the country to help when disasters occurred. Back in the early 1990s, the Funeral Director Association basically combined with the um, the U.S. government's national disaster medical system to create these DMORT teams. And so um, DMORTs became a specialty team within the national disaster medical system, which also includes what's known as DMATs, which are pretty much the emergency doctors, nurses, EMTs, um, pharmacists that rush into a disaster to help out in, with the living. There's also a second group of veterinarians that are there to help the search and rescue dogs and any animals that might be left behind as pets. But mm -hmm. the DMOR team um, pretty much is we're there to help recover and identify the deceased in a disaster and get the deceased back in with their, their families. So what happened with DMORT was in 1997, there was a federal law that was created. The law basically directed the National Transportation Safety Board to coordinate the um, all the resources for any type of aviation type, I mean, excuse me, any type of transportation accident where we need victim identification. And okay. the NTSB then signed an agreement with this National Disaster Medical System that DMORT teams will now be called upon for that. Now, after 9-11, the DMORT teams kind of bounced around. First, we were part of Homeland Security, and then we... Um, became part of the Department of Health and Human Services a couple of years later. Currently, DMORT is still part of the National Disaster Medical System, and we're, which is part of the Public Health Service, which is part of the um, um, home, um, Health and Human Services. Now, the DMORT teams were here to be pretty much provide various levels of assistance to the local communities, the medical examiners with it. So the Medical examiners or the coroners in each state and county are still in charge, but the DMORT team will come in with all their resources, and I'll talk about that in a second, to help mm -hmm. the local community in the disaster, in, again, the um, recovery and the um, identification of these unknowns. Now, DMORT teams are made up of many individuals, but including forensic pathologists, forensic anthropologists, forensic odontologists. DNA experts, fingerprints, x-ray technicians, computer specialists, a whole bunch of support personnel, including a lot of funeral directors, law enforcement, mental health specialists. And they have, DMORT has uh, currently three portable morgues that can be um, loaded onto trucks or put in airplanes and flown around the country. So 
DMORT's able to pretty much come in to help out, set up their own morgue, get their own personnel in there, get their own computer networks up there, and then be able to help the local community with whatever level of help they pretty much need. You're also part of the um, the Michigan, do you say MI Mort? Or yeah, well, it, yeah, we're just calling M-Mort. it the MI Mort. So, um, MI Mort, okay. Yeah. So what what pretty much happened was the Katrina was a it was a different type of disaster in that the DMOR had to go and help in um, two different locations. They had a, uh, they were helping in Mississippi. They were helping in Louisiana. So DMOR actually set up two different disaster morgues, and it. A lot of DMORT persons that were members went through um, helping out. When we um, replied to DMORT, they're normally two-week rotations. And so here in Michigan, a bunch of us that were in DMORT, after we were back in Michigan, we started realizing, you know, if there's a problem in which DMORT is pretty much stretched because the disaster could be in multiple locations throughout the country, we realized that DMORT may not always be available f- to respond. So back uh-huh. in 2005, a couple of the, the forensic pathologists, Dr. DeYoung and Dr. Markey and myself, um, Dutch Nye, who was a funeral director, and Dr. Norm Sauer, who was a forensic anth- anthropologist, we decided that we're going to try to form a state disaster team that would be able to okay. integrate into DMORT. And that was the beginning of our MIMORT team. So we tried to have our team so that we could respond first. And then if we're overwhelmed, we would be able to call DMORT and DMORT would be able to come in and integrate because all our procedures and our software and everything else would pretty much um, be interchangeable. And starting in 2006, the state of Michigan were able to get um, from the federal government some ASPR-type grants. Um, That's the Office of Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response. And um, the state got very, very active. And the state currently um, is very, very supportive. We have monthly meetings of our MIMOR team. And currently, we're part of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, Bureau of EMS Trauma and Preparedness. But they, we, we are a state team. We believe that, you know, God forbid we have a disaster in Michigan, we'll be able to have our state team come in and be able to respond at least for the first few weeks. And then if need be, DMORT will be requested and through the, the proper protocol to help out. And we're now not the only team like this. There are several teams throughout the country. Florida has one. Ohio has one. Wisconsin has one. New York said New York does. And and a lot of this was because we realized that DMORT might be overwhelmed at some point. So um, with the support of federal grants, we were able to form state teams that integrate with DMORT. Got it. Okay. Now, DMORT is uh, organized into uh, into regions around the country. Is is MIMORT kind of organized the same way throughout Michigan? Um, no. MIMORT, we basically have a statewide team, and we have members throughout Michigan being quite large, like many states. We do have members throughout um, the state with it. DMORT, Michigan's part of a Region 5, which is Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. But our state team, again, is just one entity with all our portable morgue equipment being housed at our state capital in Lansing um, with it. And 
our state team actually, um, unfortunately, we got activated during this, this this COVID crisis that we are currently still in. And huh. um, our state team, we went ahead and we set up at um, one of the airports in one of the hangars. We actually had to set up our ability to uh, we were requested to help the hospital overflow. The hospitals were having unclaimed COVID um, victims, and the hospitals were running out of room. And in Michigan, the um, state was not allowing funerals. They were allowing, you know, um, you could have a graveside funeral with less than 10 people. And what the hospitals were finding were families were not ready to claim the deceased knowing that they couldn't have a funeral and the hospitals became overwhelmed. So our MyMore team was able to set up in a in a hangar our um, our equipment that will allow us to go ahead and transport these individuals from the hospitals into a secure environment housed in the airplane hangar with the proper cooling equipment and everything while we were able to contact the families and allowed them to make arrangements to have their funerals. The MyMore team for this, so we weren't involved with any type of identification. We knew who all, the, who all these individuals were. It was just more of a mass, um, they just, hospitals just ran out of room. We were up for almost um, two months. And fortunately, here in Michigan, the number of deaths, you know, went way down. The hospitals were back to normal. And after a little under two months, the MIMAR team was able to break down their equipment and store it again. And we hope not to have to set it up again. This was yeah. the first time this was the first time since 2005 that our MIMAR team actually responded to a type of disaster. Other than that, we just pretty much been having trainings, hands-on trainings every two years and um, yearly conferences, that sort of thing. So it wasn't exactly what we envisioned when we formed the team, but it was wonderful that MyMore team was able to um, help out the local communities. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned, uh, so it's forensic pathologists, forensic dentists, uh, forensic anthropologists, various uh, computer uh, personnel. What other types of positions are there on, on teams like that? Like other lab personnel? Are there like dental hygienists? Okay, so um, let, let's start. I want to start talking about dentists because being a dentist, mm -hmm. um, our dental team in the state and also in DMORC, but when, when we talk about our dentist, our dental team, the dental team is made up of dentists, dental hygienists, and dental assistants. And we always believe that as in our dental office, um, the dental auxiliaries, that being the dental hygienist and the dental assistants, probably can take better x-rays than the dentist can in many cases. And so we kind of always work in teams. And when we work on a deceased individual, we're working three or four people at a time while we're doing our workup. And dental assistants and dental hygienists have been incredibly important, um, both in DMORC and on our state team in um, the helping the dentist process and um, do what we do with the individuals with it. In the state of Michigan, our MIMORE team, I believe a third of our, uh, my, of our dental team members are actually dental hygienists and um, you know probably five to 10 dental assistants. The um, DMORE team also, because this is a, a self-contained 
group that when we went down, for example, down to Katrina, there was no electricity, there was no water, there was no you know cell phone coverage. Besides the forensic specialists for the morgue, we need to have everybody else around that will allow us to do our job. So um, we have you know safety experts. We always have an EMT of some sort in case somebody gets hurt. Um, like I mentioned, mental health specialists, because this can be very psychologically trying at times. Um, sure. we, have, we have the individuals that we can then set up a, a morgue and both physically and, you know, set up the generators so that we have power, that sort of thing. Um, the computer networking is just amazing watching these guys do it. But again, you know, x-ray technicians, fingerprint experts, DNA specialists and sort. So it really is a very encompassing team. And we also have administrative people because we have to have people knowing when to rotate in and rotate out. And when DMORT, when we go go for DMORT, we actually become temporary federal employees of the federal government. Um, pretty much we get military pay. So we need administrative people that can help monitor that. Our state MIMOR team, we're all volunteers. So everybody that responds from state level wise, it, we're, we're, we're all volunteers um, with the state disaster team. When there is like a, a national disaster and the DMORT team has to get called up, if it's outside of your region, uh, like, like you mentioned, Katrina, how, how does that work? How does, how does your region get called to another region? Okay. The, typically what will happen is DMORT will try to keep people within a region if at all possible, but often the, because the region, hit the, one of the states got hit pretty hard, they're not the people that are actually going to be able to respond because they got their own problems going on there. So DMORT will go ahead and via an email or a phone call um, or text message nowadays, go ahead and ask for our availability or, you know, for everybody. And we will go ahead and respond and say, you know, I, I'm available from August 1st through August 30th. We're making a two-week two commitment that will be available to go. Often they'll give us 24 hours notice before we have to go somewhere. And what would the DMORT um, higher up people in the command, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get these different specialists, you know, whether it's a forensic odontologist or a pathologist or a computer person from around the country, knowing that this might go ahead and take longer than necessary. I believe DMORT now is about 800 people. So it's not this gigantic organization. So almost always um, when DMORT needs to come in, they're asking other regions for help and um, we'll have people from different regions coming in. That's 800 like nationwide? In, yeah, yeah. DMORT's still a very, a very small organization, yes. That, which is why the government's been so supportive of states going ahead and forming their own teams so that DMORT doesn't have to be the first choice. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Can we talk a little bit about a couple of the uh, sites that you've been to? I know in 2001, you were at the World Trade Center site, and then uh, you were you were also at Hurricane Katrina in uh, 2005. Sure. What we did was very similar, but the situations are totally different. So uh, I'll, let me talk first about my experience with the World Trade Center. Okay. Like like many people, I, I was actually at work when the um, the airplanes crashed into the Trade Center. And that night, I actually got a phone call from DMORT requesting that, you know, am I available? And if so, 
we're going to be meeting the next day in Chicago at 7 a.m. Now, Chicago is about a five-hour drive from Michigan. And I say drive because, remember, at that point, all the flights were canceled. There was nothing flying. So oh, That's right. Yeah. yeah, so about 2 a.m., uh, myself, Dr. Warnick, um, we got in our car and we actually drove to Chicago. And we all met at the airport, outside the airport, actually, um, the Region 5 people. So people had driven from Minneapolis and other areas around our, our Region 5. And there was about, I think, a little under 40 of us. And we were flown later that day. I think we were one of, you know, only a handful of flights that were actually in the air. But we were, we were flown on a, a military jet to Stewart Air Force Base, which was north of New York City. And that was sort of like the holding area for all the DMART team people coming in. And for the World Trade Center, we ended up staying in a hotel um, near the airport, near LaGuardia. And we were working um, two 12-hour shifts, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And depending on what your specialty in DMART was, that's sort of what you did. So I was actually um, there for three weeks and we were pretty much helping the forensic dentist. I was that were, you know, in the part of the medical examiner's office and working under them. And then I went back for about two weeks over Christmas that year. Um, they ran 24 hours seven, the World Trade Center, I believe, into about the first of the year in which case they mm -hmm. ended up just having to do 12-hour shifts. That was a difficult type uh, mass disaster because, one, nobody knew what was going on. We, we, everyone, we, had, we all had questions as to what's really happening, why aren't they telling us, which turned out to be nothing. Why is there so much security? And, you know, everyone was, you know, very scared. Cell phones were just beginning back then, and they didn't work very well. It was hard to communicate with their families. And right. if you remember back, the people that saw it, they would have posters all over the walls uh, throughout the city. And oh, sure. so right. the people that were missing, people that died, it was very much in your face. It wasn't like you could ignore and just do your job because you're totally inundated by the, all these individuals that have been passed away in the attack. But we were staying in hotels and we had food. So it wasn't a rustic type deployment. It was just a very psychologically hard deployment while we went ahead and did our things. Katrina right. was quite different because the, the um, hurricane went ahead and destroyed the infrastructure. What happened with Katrina is the um, National Disaster Medical System had us down in Memphis the day before the hurricane. So we were pre-deployed, them knowing that there, it was going to be a, a bad situation. And we were in Memphis as the hurricane went through. And the next day we got into trucks and cars. And my group drove down to Gulfport, Mississippi. And the other group went toward New Orleans. Um, we took over, DMART, we took over a, um, um, a hangar at the Gulfport Airport there. And that's where we set up our temporary morgue and such. But here, there were no hotels. There was no water. There was no electricity. There were no sewers. There were no um, cell phones at all. We actually took showers at a military base nearby. And 
we were sleeping um, in the – normally we'll bring in refrigerated trucks like they carry food in. And those are converted to hold the deceased and so we can keep them you know, cool. Uh, right. At that point, we had nowhere to sleep because there were no hotels. So we were sleeping on the floors in the refrigerated trucks, not with dead individuals. Um, we were sleeping on floors in there, and we were eating um, MREs and, okay. and such while FEMA and everybody was tr trying to get equipment down there um, for us. So unlike – the World Trade Center, where we had hotels, here it was very rustic, um, you know. But we kept telling ourselves we're still in so much better shape than the people that survived the hurricane down there. That it was, it was no problem at all for us. And eventually, we were able to get washer and dryers and water trucks and tents and cots and sleeping bags and everything else down there. The actual process of the forensics in the morgue is very similar in all disasters. Here, we're going to be bringing the individual in and they're going to go through the different pathology, anthropology, forensic ontology stations, and everything is going to be documented. And for Katrina, the um, difficulty for the dentist were actually getting dental records because all the dental offices were closed. Oh, so sure. we had – yeah, so we had to wait for dental offices to open up. And there were some dental offices that were right along the Gulf of um, Mexico. And some of the dental offices in Gulfport actually got um, destroyed. The other team that went to um, help New Orleans were, got stationed in um, St. Gabriel, which is about an hour away from New Orleans. And – their infrastructure was up, so they were able to set them up, and they were sleeping in sleeping bags and cots in a, um, uh elementary school, and they had at least all their infrastructure going up, and they had a little bit of an easier time getting dental records, but the numbers of deceased individuals in New Orleans was five times that of um, Mississippi. I think Mississippi was somewhere between two to 300 people that passed away that DMART saw. The New Orleans dead were, were maybe 12, 1400. Oh, okay. Wow. You know, I was just thinking if someone wanted to get involved with DMART or, or their, their state uh, organization, how, how would they go about doing that? Okay. So DMART being a, the, the federal organization, DMART will go ahead and as they have in the last couple of years, they will open up the application process for different type of specialty. One of the, and then you just need to go into a, I believe it's dmort, either .gov or um, dmort.com, but they can go on there and see, you know, what specialties, um, areas that dmort is looking for. From a dentist standpoint, the dentist responded very quickly to dmort back in the 1990s. And their DMART has not basically opened up for dentists um, since um, 2001. They feel they've had enough dentists in there. So from a dental person, dental hygienist, dental assistant standpoint, it's difficult to become a member of DMART. However, a lot of the states have state dental teams. And for that, you know, and that's really easy. I mean, in the state of Michigan, we'll love anyone that wants to join our state dental team, which is part of my mort. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we welcome with open arms. And for us, okay. um, in the state of Michigan, you can either 
we, we go into the mymymore.org website or contact in the state of Michigan. Our dental team is through the Michigan Dental Association and um, contact the Michigan Dental Association and they'll lead you to the right contact people. And like I said, a lot, a lot of states all have dental teams that have been set up over the years. They may not have a statewide mymore type team, but a lot of the states have dental teams that are available to help in a disaster. Yeah, I'm going to put links to those uh, organizations in the show notes if anybody's interested in uh, checking that out and maybe joining. I want to take a short break right here and introduce you to another podcast that I recommend. Hey, everyone. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents and the hosts of Dead Men Do Tell Tales. A podcast about forensic pathology-related topics. We've talked about everything from CSI and Bones, reality versus fiction. To natural disasters and poisonous plants. It's been a great learning experience. And we've gotten to taste a lot of really good whiskeys along the way. Oh, and don't forget about the beer and other mixed drinks, too. So if you want to hear more about the science behind autopsies, an MD's role in death investigation, or, you know, your favorite mixed drink, (laughs) you should hop on over and take a listen. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and probably a few others that we don't even know about. (laughs) Thanks, Presbrow. (laughs) Talk to you all soon. And now back to the show. You've served as the president of, you mentioned, the American Board of Forensic Odontology, uh, among other roles you've had in that organization. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? What was that like? So, yeah, the the American Board of Forensic Odontology pretty much was formed to, the object was to basically um, set standards of qualifications for people that practice forensic odontology around the world and to be a way to certify those people that have um, achieved certain levels of competency in there. And our, our American Board of Forensic Odontology is it's accredited by the Forensic Specialties Accreditation Board as a forensic specialty um, or offering board certification. The, currently, I believe we have a little under 100 um, board certified forensic dentists um, in North America because we have some Canadian members. And I was, I was present back in 2003. It's an organization of an incredibly dedicated you know, individuals. This is all dentists um, you know, on the um, board. And Actually, I think now I was president. I'm trying to think now. No. So, so the American Board of Forensic Odontology, I was the president in 2015. So the, um, the board meets yearly. We have a, um, a business meeting yearly. We piggyback onto the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in February that bounces around mm-hmm. the country. The American Board of Forensic Odontology offers workshops, um, dental identification, human abuse courtroom testimony, dental aging, as part of these meetings. And every year, there are different workshops. We don't offer off for the same time. The um, organization, like I said, we're, we're there basically to help practicing forensic dentists, even if you're not boarded, by establishing these, these guidelines and recommendations and standards that can be used around the country. And because it's a small organization, you know, at times we're very efficient and very can respond to things very quickly. And other times, because we're a small organization and we all have, I, I tell people, primary jobs, which aren't being the forensic odontologist, it's sometimes things take a long time to get, to get it done. Um, 
achieved and approved, but it, it is truly a wonderful organization um, and something that hopefully all forensic odontologists, you know, strive to achieve to be able to challenge the board and become board certified. You mentioned the, the workshops that you give. Do you teach any of those? Not anymore. The okay. workshops, basically, the chairman of that group from the board, so let's say dental identification, the chairman of that group will get members of his committee to go ahead and um, teach the workshops. So when I say not anymore, for many years, I was involved with quite a few of the different workshops. But as the, we, we have membership go through different layers of um um, office and involvement, we try to rotate um, who teaches at these courses, at least these workshops. What I am involved with is the five-day forensic dentistry course held here from the University of Detroit Mercy at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. And mm -hmm. we hold this course um, every other October. So the next course, it will be October of 2021. And what's truly unique for this course is that it's actually held in a medical examiner's office. So those people that are interested, at least seeing whether this is something they want to pursue, they are not just getting the training of a forensic odontology. We're able to offer them. They can go ahead and see how a medical examiner's works. I mean, we have wonderful forensic pathologists at our office that um, they can come in and observe autopsies and many lectures from the forensic pathologists there about non-dental things um, so that in the five days we can go ahead and expose them to all areas of forensic science, including forensic um, odontology. Do you have a specific area or two that you'd like to, like specific topics within forensic odontology that you'd like to uh, teach yourself, specific interest? My, yeah, I pretty much have been teaching a lot of, um, over the years, mass disaster um, and, mm, and such that, um, yeah, the, in a mass disaster situation, the, basically what a forensic dentist is doing is exactly what we do in a medical office or a coroner's office. But instead of a single body, we have, you know, um, unfortunately many more. And what I personally have found over the years that I've gotten very involved with the logistical aspect of this. From the um, MIMOR team, I'm actually the morgue operations um, chief. So I'm overseeing everything that's happening from a all the forensic specialties in, in the morgue. So I've actually taken a step away okay. from the forensic dentist, but we have wonderful, Dr. LaShawn, Dr. Brian Murphy are wonderful team leaders for our dental team. So I've been able to take a step away from that and help oversee everything. So over the, over the last 20 years, um, myself and Dr. Wernick, we've given many lectures throughout the country to dental teams mostly in setting up mass disaster teams, you know, how do you do it? What kind of equipment? What kind of training? And everything else like that. And it's it's been very enjoyable. A lot of exercises, hands-on pretend exercises in mass disaster. And I, I believe that because of this, many, many state teams around the country were prepared if needed to go ahead and respond. You've also done a fair amount of writing. Also, you've contributed to the Manual of Forensic Odontology. 
Can you tell me how did you get involved with, with that? So one, one of the dental organizations is the American Society of Forensic Odontology. So in forensic odontology, there's pretty much three different organizations. We have the Forensic Odontology Group that's part of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. And that's the big umbrella group okay. containing all the forensic specialties. The two smaller other organizations is one, the American Board of Forensic, the American Board of Forensic Odontology, which is the board certification group, and the other organization is called the American Society of Forensic Odontology. Now, American Society of Forensic Odontology is open to anyone that's interested in forensic odontology, forensic dentistry, and. It's a, um, we, we like to say our membership in, in includes lawyers, our membership includes laboratory people, anyone that has an interest. And like the American board, the American Society of Forensic Odontology piggybacks onto this yearly um, American Academy of Forensic Science meeting, and they have a four-day um, class workshop lectures during the week of the um, academy meeting. So anyway, so I was present back in 2003, and one of the things that Saudi has been doing for literally since the, the beginning was trying to promote um, textbooks in forensic dentistry because there were not very many. And so every few years, the American Society of Forensic Ontology would go ahead and um, publish a new edition of their textbook, which is the Manual of Forensic Odontology. I believe they're working on the sixth edition right now. And so for two of the edition, the um, third and fourth edition, I was one of many authors asked to write chapters for the textbook. The last textbook, um, the fifth edition, I was co one of the co-authors for the um, chapter on dental identification and um, the chapter on disaster victim identification. So it's um, okay. truly something for a dentist to get involved in writing because I became a dentist because I didn't like my English classes. So <laughs> to go ahead and become a, a textbook writer, it, it stretched my abilities. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> sure. Okay. So you've, you've been uh, involved in the forensic fields are quite a while now. What are some ways the field has changed over the years? Like I've noticed, you know, in, in recent, maybe the last decade or maybe two digital x-rays in dentistry have become kind of the norm, um, which I imagine has made your job a lot easier. But what, what are some other things that have changed over the years? Yeah, well, you know, let's start with the digital and the portable stuff. So the equipment has changed tremendously, which makes our life so unbelievably easy. Digital x-rays, because, you know, so for people that aren't familiar, dentistry, if you think about normally we had little film that we put in somebody's mouth and we shot an x-ray and then you had to go put it, either hand process it in dip tanks or run it through a machine that would go ahead and process the x-ray film. So when doing a um, dental identification on a deceased individual, we're taking dental x-rays so that we can compare those dental x-rays to the dental x-rays that we got from the dentist. And what we're looking for is basically, are things the same or if things change in a logical direction? Um, what I mean by that is, did a small filling get larger? If a tooth had a filling when the person was alive and you're looking at the tooth in a deceased individual and there's no filling in there, it probably is not that individual. 
teeth don't miraculously heal themselves um, and the fillings go away. But so the difficulty in the past was we had to take these x-rays and then we had to go ahead and process them. And many medical examiner's offices did not have the equipment to process them. So we'd take the x-rays, go back to your dental office and um, develop them and hope that the x-rays you took were good enough. Um, The use of digital now, we have a digital sensor that's hooked up to a laptop, which makes it very portable. And our digital x-rays are instantaneous. Um, Along with that, in the dental office, you always have those x-ray machines attached to the wall, which made it difficult because not all medical examiner's offices had that sort of equipment. So often we were dependent on medical x-rays to compare to dental x-rays. But um, for the last um, probably 10 to 15 years, there are handheld portable dental x-ray units. So I'm talking about the thing that's attached to the wall right now. These things look like just very large um, guns, and they actually would take the x-ray. So you take the x-ray and you shoot it at a sensor, and literally in three seconds, you have your dental image to look at. So working on deceased individuals, we get instantaneous x-rays that I can go ahead and say, you know, that's good, but the angle from the x-ray from the dentist is different. I can change that x-ray, and so I can get even a better shot Mm. of that. So it's made our life really easy. And then getting the antemortem, the before-death records from the dentist, which is what we need to compare with, when the dentist offices and more and more are becoming digital, can email them to us, we can get their records instantaneously instead of waiting days for mail or, you know, next day for, you know, FedEx. And the quality is truly much better. The old film x-rays would, um, over time, got worse. And so the quality of the film x-rays sometimes were less than ideal. And digital basically, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is great. And truly, in my mind, the most important thing is it's easy to store these x-rays. It's it's all digital. So we no longer call up an office and say, do you have dental records? And they go, oh, they haven't been here for 14 years. And after 10 years, I destroyed the dental records because it's a digital media, which means people, the dentists are going to be storing these dental records pretty much forever. So we're no longer going to have to worry about dental records being destroyed. It's just a question of being able to find out which dentist they had gone to. So the the field has changed tremendously because of all this. And because of all this, with the digital transfer of information and stuff, the American Dental Association under um, Dr. Ken Ashheim out of New York had been working on standards regarding digital transfer of forensic dental information. Teeth are numbered differently depending on um, what country you're from. So they're working on all these standards so that we're going to be able to um, seamlessly export information overseas if somebody passes away there and the dental records are here or vice versa. And this has been at least a five-year project, Mm -hmm. but it's incredibly exciting. And I believe that they're almost done with it. Oh, wow. Is there some sort of like, you know, like with fingerprinting, you've got sort of a national database. Is there something like that for dental records? Um, There isn't for people that are living, like for you and me. Okay. There's always been Mm -hmm. from the population privacy, you know, issues with that. But what there is, is that... 
when we have an unknown, um, maybe it was a street person or we don't know who this person is. So typically in Wayne County, we'll, we'll go ahead, we'll take dental x-rays, we'll compare that to the dental x-rays of all the people reported missing in the community. And if it's none of those people, the um, Department of Justice has a, um, a group called NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S. And NamUs is interesting. NamUs will go ahead. We can go ahead and put our dental information from our unknowns into NamUs, which is a national-wide information. And NamUs will also have dental information from uh, missing people in there. And the NamUs um, group will go ahead and try to run through the computers, match these individuals up. So we will go ahead and we put all of our unknowns into this NamUs program. And we'll get, you know, um, emails from them and said, well, it's possible it's these people. Will you go ahead and double check? And we'll go out to go ahead and double check to see okay. if it is. Um, NamUs also has a DNA registry. So not only do we send them our dental record to NamUs, we'll send them um, a, a something that they can run DNA on. So they have the DNA of the unknowns also. Okay. This has been fascinating. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to mention? I could not have asked for a better second career. I love being a dentist, but the our ability to help families, you know, because every time I go in there and identify somebody that's deceased that can't be visually identified, I'm helping a family. I'm helping a family be able to have a funeral, get closure, and all the sort of legal aspects as far as, you know, the state settlement and everything else like that. And when we go ahead and able to identify um, some, whether it's decomposed or skeletal remains that someone's been missing for four to six months, I, I find it so exciting because the, the closure, the ability to help the family and the community is wonderful. It's a great profession. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely hear the uh, excitement in your voice. Dr. Berman, thank you so much. This has been great. You're welcome. Big thanks to Dr. Gary Berman. And also thanks to Dr. Lachman Sung from the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office and Detroit's Daily Docket podcast for connecting me with Dr. Berman. As always, the links to everything that we talked about in this episode will be in the show notes, which are at the website, peopleofpathology.podbean.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. And if you like this episode, Share it with someone you know, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.